Apologies in advance for the wind and the hubbub in the background and the moving crates and the bangs and the clangs and all the other noises. I'm coming to you from year-end climate talks in Dubai. You're listening to Season 8 of Bionic Planet, brought to you this month by Ecosystem Marketplace, the world's leading provider of freely available news and views on the economic value of nature's services. Ecosystem Marketplace, making the priceless valuable. That land was all forest in the past, but slowly, by slowly and consistently, it has been deforested uh, for people starting new farms and expanding the ones that were existing, so it stand bare. When agronomist George Thumi first moved from Nairobi to southern Kenya, he found a bush with no bushes, a forest that looked more like a desert and tens of thousands of people on the brink of starvation. So we either change the attitude of how we do our farming or uh, food production will collapse and the farmer will suffer fast. George has done his part to prevent that collapse by helping farmers plant millions of trees. That helps take pressure off surrounding forests and infuses carbon into the soil, just like Prisca Mayanda did in episode 89. Like Prisca, his activities are financed by the sale of carbon credits, but unlike her, he gets no credit for the carbon he locks in the soil, only for the reduced deforestation in surrounding areas. He's begun to revitalize this barren land, but the region has a long way to go, and all of the progress to date could evaporate if the project doesn't find a better way of quantifying and communicating its impacts. Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know it's ugly face. We should put a big fat price on it, and of course, add to that, drop the subsidies. Standing in the food court at Expo City in Dubai, closing out Season 8 of Bionic Planet. So again, apologies for any background noise. I may be in Dubai, but I interviewed today's guest, George Thumbi, in southern Kenya, specifically in the Kasigao Corridor, a farming region between the Savo East and Savo West National Parks. Elephants roam there, as do giraffes, zebra, and other wildlife that often conflict with humans. George runs a tree nursery there, too. It serves more than 100,000 people in over 150 communities spread across 500,000 acres of farmland. Remember the Chulu Hills from episodes 86, 87, and 88? Well, the Kasigao Corridor gets its groundwater from those hills. But when I spoke with George, this area was parched by drought. Yet, unlike in previous droughts, the groundwater was plentiful, even though the skies were dry. Why? in part because of the RED project we visited in the Chulu Hills. RED, with two Ds, is an acronym for Reducing Emissions from Deforestation and Degradation, and the Chulu Hills RED project revived the water supply by reviving the cloud forest atop those hills. If you don't know what a cloud forest is, I recommend episode 86. George works with the Kasigao Corridor RED project, which features prominently in this series from now onward. It's a true first mover, the very first RED project ever certified under the Verified Carbon Standard, and it piloted the very first RED methodology. 
Methodologies are step-by-step -step instructions for developing RED projects by blending common sense with so-called land change models to measure impact. In this case, scientists from around the world developed those land change models in the 1990s. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, evaluated them in the year 2000. Those same scientists later outlined steps for embedding those models in methodologies, and that led to the first RED methodology in 2010. These early methodologies were learned by doing affairs, as are newer ones and really most climate solutions. Almost everything we're doing to meet the climate challenge is learned by doing. And that's why standard-setting body VERA mandated they be re-evaluated and updated over time as science advances and reality changes. Well, the world has changed a lot since then. The Paris Agreement brought national-level forest inventories, while more data drove more insight into the reliability of different indicators. As a result, VERA is moving to a new, less subjective methodology that starts at the national level and works down to local risks. Under the new methodology, which we will explore in a lot of detail in Season 9, this project will get less credit for reducing deforestation than it originally got. Now, there's a whole debate over whether that's because the developers overestimated deforestation risk, or if the new methodology undercounts, or if the old methodology wasn't conservative enough. And I'll be unpacking that in Season 9 as well, but there's no way to go into it here. For this series, I'm just focusing on the human activities themselves, and you'll see that the deforestation threat was clear. People were chopping trees, turning them into charcoal, and poaching wildlife. The project is clearly reducing deforestation by reducing poverty. The question isn't if it's having an impact, but how big that impact is and what other impacts beyond carbon it is having. That's what makes this an interesting and important case study. These early projects aimed to leverage carbon finance because that was the only money available. But they almost always delivered a lot more ecosystem services than just carbon sequestration. We saw, for example, that the Chulu Hills project replenished the watershed by reviving the forest. If you Google Chulu Hills Payments for Watershed Services, you'll find plenty of academic literature arguing that the economic benefits of fixing the water system dwarf any payments received for the RED project. With the advent of jurisdictional carbon accounting, we'll probably see lower supplies of carbon credits in the future, but higher prices, according to Ecosystem Marketplace and others. Early projects like this could lose out on the carbon front, and they're looking to finance their activities by quantifying other benefits like water provision, biodiversity protection, and improved working conditions. These are the kinds of issues I worked on for 15 years at Ecosystem Marketplace, and they're what I really wanted to cover when I launched Bionic Planet in 2016. It's a theme that's finally catching on, as the theme of nature positivity is central to this year's climate talks, and standard-setting bodies like Vera and Gold Standard are refining the way they verify contributions to the Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs. I've covered all of these issues over the course of the show, and I'll be exploring them more in Season 9, but this episode and this series is more about people than about projects or methodologies. And before I hand over to George, I need to point out that not all of the people associated with this project or any human endeavor are honorable. A Dutch NGO and a Kenyan NGO claim to have jointly uncovered what they call systemic sexual abuse in the project. 
Wildlife Works, which administers the project, looked into the accusations and said they do have merit, but they denied that it's a systemic issue. They fired the project's chief ranger, who they said was, in fact, pressuring women for sex. They also fired the project's hiring manager, who they said had ignored complaints from several women and fomented a culture of intimidation. Both Vera and Wildlife Works acknowledged that the project's grievance mechanisms, a key part of the social safeguards in any carbon project, had failed. Complaints from the women in the project should have triggered an investigation immediately, but they didn't. Vera put the issuance of credits on hold until it finishes its own investigation. At this point, Wildlife Works says the problem relates to a few bad actors, while the NGOs say there's more to it. I don't know who's right and who's wrong, but until the investigations are done, I'm not including any interviews with members of the Ranger Corps. I am rolling out interviews with other members of the community, because neither George nor any of the people I'm focusing on are implicated in any of these accusations, and I don't see the value of punishing innocents for the sins of their co-workers, especially if those innocents are teaching, training, building infrastructure, and improving food supplies. That would be like punishing a city's entire school system, its public works, and its grocery stores because of abuse in the police department. The fact is that the activities we're hearing about in this series must continue if people in these areas are to have any chance of a comfortable life. Also, unlike the other three projects in this series, I didn't visit this one on my own, but with two other reporters. We all came independently, and we were free to speak to whoever we wanted to and ask whatever we wanted, but we weren't driving the bus. You'll hear the voices of other reporters asking questions, and they've given me permission to leave their questions in, but we were working independently of each other. My name is George Thumbe. I am the department manager of agribusiness and forestry department at Wildlife Works Carbon uh, Project. I'm trained uh, agronomist from Egerton University in the Rift Valley region of Kenya with uh, 32 years experience uh, growing plants. I grown flowers, I've grown vegetables, but uh, now I'm growing uh, trees and integrating that with social work. You said uh, social work, do you mean teaching? We are actually here to change attitudes. We see the farmer as very central in uh, the fact that farming is the biggest driver of deforestation and leading to global warming and the whole thing about climate change. And the farmer is also the one that is facing the brunt of climate change that uh, they have contributed towards. And so we see farmers as very central in also participating in providing uh, solutions. So we are trying to show them what they have done also as uh, individuals and as uh, farmer groups to cause the problems they are suffering from. And so put them at the center of also providing the solution. So we are, we are sensitizing them. We are showing them where we came from, the mistakes we have made, and where we have reached a point whereby it, uh, we either change the attitude how we do our farming or uh, food production will, will collapse and the farmer will suffer fast. So we're trying to train them on alternative ways of uh, doing agriculture, specifically conservation agriculture. So we are fighting against uh, massive tillage, cutting of trees, slash and burn, and other things that cause problems and proposing different ways of doing things in the whole subject of conservation agriculture which is soil erosion control, water conservation, incorporating trees within the farms, in agroforestry. Yeah, this is the big effort that we have to make. There is a long way to go. 
because damage was massive for very many years. But we've seen positivity. We've seen something positive from that. Uh, in a few minutes, you will see a group of farmers coming here. We train them. Ethiopia in the morning and then in the afternoon we go to a piece of land that we have bought and uh, we are doing conservation agriculture practically. How long have you been here? I've been here for nine years now. Okay. Yes. And how familiar are you with the area around here before Wildlife Works came? How familiar are you with the degradation that, that took place? Uh, I came slightly after the project started mm -hmm. uh, but of course I've also seen uh, a positive trend for, mm -hmm. the, for the time that I've been here. I have seen a specifically attitude change in the mm. community. Planting trees or increasing tree cover was not something that people are discussing a lot. But uh, because of our work, now I see people discussing that mm. a lot. Mm. We are in WhatsApp groups yeah. and uh, there is a lot of discussion about tree planting. There is a lot of tree planting that is going on. Mm -hmm. And you will see the homesteads and the schools are getting greener. Mm. There are the trees that I found small are now fully matured trees. Can you actually flesh it out just a bit, go back in time to kind of remember when you got here, what you found, what the landscape was like, what people were doing specifically, because most of the listeners have no idea what charcoaling is or any of this, and talk about what, what activities were happening, what the impact was on the landscape, and what attitudes had to be changed, and how you changed them. Yeah, no, um, this is a, a semi-arid uh, area, almost uh, going towards uh, full uh, aridity, and so there was a lot of tree felling and burning of charcoal and fuel wood production. You would see cuts of charcoal and fuel wood being ferried from the forests to the town centers. And so when you look at the farms, they were all bare, no trees, which also contributes a lot to the poor soils that we have because when the rain comes here, it would sweep all the soil because it's tilled, it is loose, um, people have done uh, deforestation and also burnt the vegetation. And so the soil is waiting for rains to come and it's uh, transported down the slope. Uh, this being also a place where 30% of the annual rain can come in a few hours in one day. Yeah, there's a time we got 110 millimeters of rain mm -hmm. in a few hours. And the whole year we had 519. So that's a fifth of the rain in, in a few hours. Uh -huh. Yeah, so there was massive soil erosion. Now I start seeing uh, the attitude has changed a lot mm -hmm. because of the work that we are doing here over the years. There is more tree planting. Like this year, I have not seen one incidence of burning of the farms, mm -hmm. the weeds. They clear before they plant, they used to clear using fires, which caused a lot of problems, not only in destroying the soil, but also fire accidents were a big problem here. We haven't seen anything like that this year. Mm -hmm. So... That's a very positive thing. How hard was it to get people to change? It's always difficult, right? I mean, how did you persuade them that they needed to change? Yeah, it's very difficult because when you're trying to tell them how bad that is, they have a very good explanation as to why they do it. So sometimes you feel like, hey, you're explaining to them, but they're also explaining back. And they're almost converting you, <laughs> you know, because basically it's an easy way of clearing land. In one minute, the whole place is burnt and there are no weeds. And now you are telling them uh, you have to stop doing it and use other methods. So by persistently having groups coming here to Wildlife Works, we are teaching them, we are showing them clips of how bad those habits are and where we have reached. We ask them also because majority of our community members are the youth. Mm -hmm. And they have already seen 
differences in since they were born. The old people have major stories. And so we've told them this is what has caused uh, what we are experiencing right now. This is a place where climate change is not in the papers and in the internet. It is something we feel. It is something you hear. It is something that you see. It's very clear. So the community have suffered a lot and we have highlighted what they've done to create that and what even other people beyond this place have. And so they've realized that we have to change. We have had to use these bad examples of like flooding, flash floods, very, very, very high temperatures, very long dry season and crop failure to tell them we have no choice now but to change. And people have got that fear that, uh, yeah, we are heading in the wrong direction. We have succeeded in convincing them that unless we change, we are not going anywhere. And uh, we have seen a good response. People come here asking us uh, to give them seedlings to plant. In the past, when we started the project, we were delivering seedlings to people who were not very interested. Mm. And we lost a lot of seedlings because they were not either not planted or not looked after. But now people come here telling us they want to plant uh, seedlings. And that is the biggest uh, positive change that we have seen. The attitude is completely different. And so I believe we are heading into the solution uh, phase of it. The way you described it, first they were coming in and chopping trees. You're bringing agroforestry, you're trying to encourage them to plant in among the trees without chopping, but then you're providing seedlings as well. Is that for areas that have already been deforested? Or like, I guess the question, what specific activities are you teaching them and how do the seedlings fit into that? Yeah, first of all, the areas we are talking about is not in the forest. Mm -hmm. It is in their farmland where they do their agriculture. That land was all forest in the past, but slowly by slowly and consistently it has been deforested. Uh, for people starting new farms and uh, expanding the ones that were existing. So it stand bare. So now we are telling them, because you remove the trees from their home, now you have to welcome them in the farms. You have to grow trees in agroforestry techniques with growing the crops. So mm -hmm. that is what we are doing and we provide the seedlings. We tell them the advantages of having trees, providing shade mm -hmm. for their crops. Uh, and how to manage the trees, the selection of the trees, the species that are not damaging the crops. And uh, when we incorporate that with soil erosion control, such as uh, doing uh, the soil erosion control structures, the pits, the cut-off drains, the bench terraces, and minimizing plowing to like 40% mm -hmm. at, uh, at most, and holding that water in the land. So the whole thing about water harvesting in the soil and storage it there, so that it can push the crop across the line. Because most of the times you will see at the end of the rainy season follows the drought and there's not enough rain to fully grow the crop. But um, what we are demonstrating and we are adjusting our first season is that uh, if you harvest the water in the soil, store it there, it will uh, help the crops just cross the line and there will be harvest. Mm -hmm. And uh, we'll be incorporating that with the livestock production because People here are just farmers. They do livestock production and grow. So we, the essence is not to tell them to stop doing what they were doing, but do it in a way that uh, allows the soil to, regen to restore and uh, improve the soils over the years, produce more than they were doing per unit area. Uh, yeah. How many different species of plants do you have here? And how do you know which is the right species depending on where the location is that you're planting? We have here about, I'm not sure I know the number exact, but it's about 15 species. We observe, we observe nature. We do not want uh, 
to force a species that doesn't grow in a certain place to start growing. So our project area is wide, it's about 500,000 acres, and so the climatic conditions vary within our project area. So we observe the types of trees that grow in the different parts of our project area. And uh, when we are asking the community to supply us with seedlings, we ask specific uh, species from those areas. And that is where we also make sure that we plant them. There are some areas that are fairly high, like just behind me, uh, somewhere like uh, five kilometers, it's fairly high. So there are certain species that will be adopted there and others are lowland. So we basically try to keep species within the area where they are local. The species that you're giving to the people that are coming here asking you for seedlings, is that a specific type that is good for their homes or their farms? How is it different from the, the species you would plant in the 500 acres? Yeah, whenever somebody makes a request, we want to know what purpose they have for the seedlings. So we advise them the species to take. Like for example, in the schools, in areas where, for example, there's a football field, if you plant the acacias, the balls get punctured. So we ask them, where do you want to plant? And so we give them specific uh, species that uh, will not puncture their balls. I am a football fan, so I don't want to hear that kids can't play football because of an acacia tree that's going next. So we do that behind other, other, other seedlings. At home, there are shade plants that uh, do not have extensive root system to damage the houses. Other people want seedlings for woodlot. They want seedlings that are commercial because we have some farmers who have uh, large tracts of land that is just idle and uh, as it regenerates, they can use that to grow trees for commercial purposes. So that cushions the trees in the forest. Um, so the purpose for which somebody has to plant the tree de determines which species we give them. Uh, those commercial interests for folks who are growing on larger plots of land where they're not farming, is that mostly for uh, timber or is it for charcoal production? What are they using the trees to grow for? Yeah, you know, for the same purposes, they cut trees in the forest. It's yeah. for timber, it's for charcoal, it's for fuel wood, it's for poles. And so we're telling them, you have to plant this in your own uh, farms, do tree growing. The same way you are growing food crops, you can also grow trees. And um, because a tree takes a long time, by the time you are harvesting that tree on your farm, it's already benefited the environment in, in a big way and to stagger the growth. So when you plant a tree that takes 12 years to mature, by the time it's about six years, then you plant another lot in between so that you have a permanent forest on the farm. And uh, so when you harvest something that you have grown yourself, it's morally right uh, more than going to cut uh, a tree that has been growing for 200 years and you cut it. It's uh, immoral, so we want them to be responsible, stop cutting trees in the forest, and grow trees, purposely. You may have noticed something different about the beginning of today's show, a new sponsor. That's because I found it psychologically difficult to be working with Vera while trying to cover them as they became increasingly, and I argue unjustly, criticized in the media. If you're a regular listener, you know that I've been trying to explain how carbon standards work for years. And the rigorous process of expert review and public consultation that they utilize to develop their methodologies. I've covered Vera, but also Gold Standard and Art Trees. While my goal from the outset was to focus more on the nexus between forests, farms, and finance in general, as well as air, water, and climate, than on carbon markets. 
Contrary to what some people, such as Kevin Conrad, who I've had on the show a few times, have said, I never got paid by carbon standards all those years that I was explaining them and defending them. I just felt a moral obligation to set the record straight. I also don't claim these projects are creating paradise on Earth. Even Mark Kenber, who founded Vera and who will feature in a later episode, says the objective is to make things less bad. These projects operate where other efforts have failed, and they are succeeding while getting better over time, but they're not succeeding at the scale needed, and they will never achieve perfection. Once I started working with Vera, it became clear that I was perceived as speaking for them on the show, despite the fact that I was never a spokesperson and that they were completely hands-off on Bionic Planet. Also, the time that I had left over to produce the show was very limited, so we have decided to part ways financially. I'm giving Bionic Planet a go again full-time, trying to get the money to do it right. I'm looking for sponsors, of course, and I thank Ecosystem Marketplace for stepping up this month, but you can help as well. If you like the show, you can help me deliver more and better episodes by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash bionicplanet. There you can support me for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. I'll be cranking out more episodes in the future, and I hope to earn your support. The address again is patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash bionicplanet. By the same token, if you're an ethical business looking to reach a global climate-aware audience, you can become a sponsor or advertiser by reaching out to me directly. My address is steve at bionic-planet.com. That's steve at bionic-planet.com. Finally, if you can't support the show financially, you can still help by giving me an honest five-star review on whichever podcatcher you access me through. That helps because the more stars we get, the more ears we get. And the more ears we get, the more minds we can reach. And we must reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet the climate challenge. We can do it if we all work together. Roughly how many people work in the greenhouse department? We have 25 permanent staff and we have one intern. We always uh, have an intern or two here because we also want to develop the human resource in this place. So the students from here, first and foremost, there are not hardly any other opportunities for young people other than wildlife facts. It's a place where there is not much investment. So students who finish school also come here and we train them, we work with them, we give them an opportunity to get some experience. We end up hiring some of them. We have hired one last year and we believe the one, the intern that we have now because our activities are expanding, we'll also retain her. Yeah. I know a lot of folks around here practice subsistence farming or they have cattle. We also passed a big uh, sisal plantation on the way in. Have you seen operations like that grow over the past couple of years or the past few decades? Is there pressure to expand the sisal uh, plantation even further? The large-scale uh, plantations are, are something very old. They are big and I haven't seen them expanding, partly because they are owned by companies and they have reached their limits. Yeah, I'm sure if there was more land, they probably would, but uh, the ones that I have seen are not expanding. The second thing you mentioned about livestock is where we have an issue. The climatic conditions here suit uh, ranching a lot, grazing of animals, the local breeds, uh, specifically goats. 
it's a big commercial enterprise because goats can survive even very, very dry conditions. Like the last three years, we've hardly had any rain. And the goats are still smiling. I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 the goats are still surviving. They will eat roots. They will eat so you can't tell people here to stop keeping goats. And that is also the biggest challenge we have. When we plant trees, it is the goats that uh, pose the biggest challenge at, at the same time with the drought. So the livestock is a big problem. And our rangers have been... Uh, trying to fight people from going into the protected areas. Now, uh, we cannot convert people to stop doing that. So what, as a company, we have decided is to teach them ways of doing that, but in a responsible manner. And uh, like you will see in our new piece of land, uh, it's about six and a quarter acres, we will be demonstrating how farmers can grow fodder crops and keep the right number of animals on their land without it roaming, because right now they are, it's like borderless. In the dry season, when there are no crops, they roam. You open a gate and the goats are out there, and they are very intelligent. Around 3 p.m., 4 p.m., they start returning home. So they do a lot of damage. They loosen the soil. They, you know, where they have uh, tracks, the cows, the camels, the goats, where they walk, they make tracks, and that is where erosion starts. That is where you start seeing uh, big gullies start like that. Mm. So now we've incorporated fodder production as part of uh, our soil erosion control and uh, we are demonstrating that to the community so that they will keep the right number of animals, the right quality of animals so that instead of having 50 and you have only 20 which is a good quality, then you are doing even better than somebody who is having you know, hundreds of them, and you keep them within your piece of land in a managed way so that they stop all the okay. destruction. So part, uh, if I'm hearing you, uh, sustainable practices limit the population of goats, but make sure all the goats you have are healthier than yes. just as many as possible. Yeah, B better quality, better production per unit area yeah. than before, and do it responsibly. Is the fodder, you meaning leaves from trees, or is it different plants? Some of the trees that we are planting are also fodder. The selection of uh, species that we plant is such that it has multiple benefits. So some of them will be providing fodder, like the Moringa tree will be harvesting fodder. Others will be for other things like timber, fruits, so on. So, But we're also planting grass, mm -hmm. high-value, high-nitrogen uh, grass along the contours. As it controls soil erosion and keeps the soil intact, it will also uh, be fodder for the animals. Mm -hmm. And if when it is raining, because it does rain, the problem is it rains for a short time and then it's flood. So mm -hmm. for the short time that it rains, conserve that water in the soil and even in uh, tanks for those who can and in dams. But harvest the fodder, chop mm -hmm. it and uh, keep it as silage. So that will be feeding your animals during the dry season. That's a part of conservation agriculture for the livestock keepers. How much of this activity impacts the carbon accounting? 60% of the carbon that uh, we're talking about here is in the soil. So yeah, we are look also looking at uh, increasing the carbon, but more to improve the soil, the humus levels, because the carbon that we talking about is uh, in the forest in the protected areas mm -hmm. so really in the farms no but the way I would say it's an indirect way to increase the carbon uh, retention in the forest by people doing what they do and generating an income for themselves so that they stop hurting the trees in the forest 
Yeah. So the carbon that the project gets credit for is the avoided deforestation in the forest. The carbon that ends up in the soil is a bonus. Yeah, because people this people are doing well in the, within the their family farms, then they are not hurting the forest. Yeah. So that is the indirect uh, mm -hmm. benefit to the to the carbon in the forest. What kind of results did people need to see before you had a critical mass of farmers following this route? Huge, huge effort. Because we we say, here we say uh, all of us are farmers. Mm -hmm. We even forget that may not necessarily be true because you need skills, you need... But we are born straight and we are farmers. So you find even uh, people who are different professions are also doing farming. And for a long, long time, there is a way of doing things that uh, we've been brought up with. Uh, slash and Burn is, uh, is associated with us for all the years behind us. So dropping those habits has been very, very hard and frustrating. Mm -hmm. So it has taken us uh, farmers meetings, trainings here at the headquarters, going out there talking to people posting uh, clips of uh, the bad things that are happening and the good things that happen where people have had a change. And recently we are now seeing uh, the positive effect of that. And I believe uh, if our project continues, uh, if we keep getting more carbon credit sales, it's another small takeoff, the way I see it. Mm -hmm. And your activity is financed 100% from the carbon, right? That's what pays for what happens here. Yes, it's all financed by the carbon credit income that we get. And the Other. people that come here for seedlings, they don't pay, right? Like they, you give it for free? Yes. Uh, if I may take that opportunity to explain our tree planting program. It's an annual program. We've been handling about uh, 30,000 seedlings. But because of improved communication and uh, contact with farmers, we have now reached almost double that. Because last year we did about 54,000 from 30,000. So what we do is we order seedlings from the community groups who have nurseries. We have something like 120 small nurseries across the project area. So we procure the seedlings from them every year and then we bring it to our premises where we, we, we retain them for about a year until the rain peaks. Usually in the month of November is the only time in the year that you have an opportunity to plant a tree for it to have chances to take and grow. So when we get it from the farmers, we pay them. Last year we spent about um, 1.5 million Kenya shillings. I think that's about $15,000. This time I have not done the calculations because we have just uh, finished collecting. But I think it will be a figure. So we procure it by paying the community. But when we deliver, we deliver free of charge and we actually deliver it on to site. So we're not telling them to come and collect unless somebody lives very near our nursery. But uh, we use our trucks, we even hire trucks when we have too much work to deliver the seedlings to the sites where they want to plant, free of charge. The community will plant the trees or do you plant them as well? No, the community will plant the trees. What we do like uh, now, what we are doing is we are uh, asking people to excavate holes because now this in this rainy season you cannot plant trees many trees unless somebody has water to supplement the rain so we are telling them you know the earlier they can excavate the holes ready for the rains in november the better so now people are busy excavating the holes we are also busy going around now teaching people the right size of the holes the spacing and so by november they have the holes 
they can count the holes so they know the number of seedlings they want to plant. And uh, come the rainy season, we distribute the seedlings for planting. We have improved our communication a lot through uh, local radio programs and also WhatsApp, social media groups. So we've seen a lot of uptake of uh, the information we give the community. We are, trees are getting planted better and so the success rate is also going high. It's very difficult to grow a tree in, in this place, but uh, we know that necessity is the mother of uh, innovations. Mm -hmm. So we are improving, we are doing much better. What is your favorite tree and why? <laughs> My favorite tree is uh, Melia volcansi. It's a hardwood that grows extremely fast. And uh, because of its anatomy, it survives drought uh, very much. So that is a tree that um, has a very fast impact. And uh, it's good for the forest, it's good for shade. It's also, you know, good for commercial purposes. And it's very, very adopted to the conditions here. It's a fantastic tree. Even though the carbon credit isn't tied you know, directly to your work here at the nursery and the planting of trees, what would be the way that you would communicate to someone buying the carbon credit so that they understand the relationship between the purchase of that credit and the ability to support your work here financially uh, in the nursery? You know, our nursery is not profit-making. So our nursery cannot pay for its costs. It cannot employ staff. And so somebody who is buying carbon credits is helping me and uh, our staff because we are able to employ people. We are able to pay them a decent salary. And we are able to finance all our activities that I have said and the ones that I have not said are all financed by the carbon uh, credit. So it's important for people to partner with us in uh, different ways. They can either partner with us by buying the carbon credit or donating so that we can keep our activities alive. Otherwise, without a carbon credit sale, we are all home. All those activities will go to sleep. So, yeah. This is where we hold the trees for about a year because the planting season here is just one because of the, the, the patterns of rains. So these seedlings have been uh, procured from the community. And they will, we, we don't have a major planting program for this rainy season because it is usually short and it is followed by a very, very long dry spell of about six months. So we are holding them here, maintaining them, looking after them, that is pest control, pruning the canopy when it's too big, removing the sequins, pruning the roots and watering them until the rains come in November. So like, for example, what he's doing here, he's pruning because we expect the rains to reduce and to end maybe in a few weeks. So we want the trees to be like dormant. Mm. So uh, he's pulling all the leaves off the trees. the leaves. Some of them have uh, pests and so we are not pruning them <laughs> because we hate them because they're looking <laughs> very bad, but uh, they will sit there without pests, dormant. And then just about four months before the rains, we prune again. This time we are pruning higher up because we are just removing the leaves because it is them that transfer and lose water. Mm. And so we will come again and prune further down and allow the new shoots to grow ready for planting. Can you plant every year or if there's a drought, can you still plant? Uh, you know, we always hope that there will be rain. Normally, we know the weather has, patterns have changed. When we were expecting rain, sometimes we don't get it. But we are always optimistic that we are going to have rain. What we do is to try and capitalize on the little rain that comes. So we do the project very, very fast. As soon as the first drops hit the ground, 
the holes are ready, we plant. Oh, right. Like yeah. now they are digging the holes ready. We are set. Can you give me an idea just roughly of what wages uh, people are paid here? People are getting approximately, in Kenya shillings, about 20,000 Kenya shillings. Per, per person per month. Benefits is uh, medical. We offered lunch and tea during the day which keeps our energy up, which uh, also encourages people to come to work because sometimes at home there, is, there are problems, mm -hmm. <laughs> given the fact that it doesn't rain much, so there is no food, much food production. Where, where is your favorite tree, the one okay. that you oh, mentioned? One. Fully grown out there. Oh, yeah. So you can take a picture from the other side, but mm -hmm. this is it. It's a wonderful tree. It's a tree that we look at as also an alternative source of income for the community because Timber will always be needed, mm -hmm. poles will always be needed. This is a hardwood, it's not eaten by termites. And so as we look at alternative income generating activities other than burning and selling charcoal, this is one of the activities that farmers can undertake mm -hmm. and cushion the trees in the forest. And you can see here, we use drip irrigation. We've just brought these seedlings, yeah. so we have not stretched the drip lines, but as you can see, we'll be stretching oh, yeah. the drip lines. So we do not water from higher area, we do it uh, by drip. So we will match every pot here with a dripper, so that we use the least ah, amount okay. of water. Like almost like going through with an eyedropper and dropping it in yes. by hand, right, into each pot. Yeah, rather than that, uh, we, we use the drip lines. You can right. see them there. I wondered what those were, okay. When you stretch them, uh -huh. They have got holes, so we match the pot with the holes, and so we drip right where the plant is. This is where we keep the finished product. And we, we also do uh, grafting of uh, fruit trees, mm -hmm. and this is the final destination. These are ready to be planted. I will just show you quickly where we are doing uh, where we are doing grafting. So this is where we do our fruit tree grafting. Our staff are skilled in uh, grafting fruit trees and it's also something that we teach the community. In a few minutes there will be a community group here mm -hmm. uh, working with us. They're already on site but they're in another section. So we do grafting here mm -hmm. and we, when we teach the community these kind of techniques, we are arming them to be able also to go and start the similar activities for them to earn a livelihood. Mm -hmm. So that's another benefit of uh, our Red Plus project. Yeah. What, what are these trees? These are mango seedlings. This is the local mango species called dodo. It's the small green sour mango, which is good. We use as a rootstock because it is indigenous in this area. And so it is able to take the stresses in the soil. So on top of it, we put now the more commercially acceptable species. Mm -hmm. Yes. Oh. So you, you graft the commercial species on top of the, onto this yes, one? Yes. So then you have the double benefits. Yeah. The fruit that you get is of a higher quality, sweeter, it has less, uh, less fiber, and it produces when the tree is very short, very small, produces early. Mm. It literally halves the production cycle. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's the final product. Yeah, we've tasted some of those mangoes. <laughs> very delicious. Yeah. So this is grafted. So it looks like you've got a, one of the branches You've taped another branch from the other one onto it, and now it's going to grow together. Yeah. The tip, the one at the end, is from a healthy mother plant. Uh -huh. So the selection is also you have to look at the tree which is healthy, the species that you want, and 
the joint is here and then you right. wrap the joint to, to avoid water going in there and, and causing rotting. Okay, and you've got a whole slew of these here. These little plants, each with a little plastic bag on top. And the, oh, and that's what these yeah, people just, are doing here. Yeah, this is to create a small microclimate where the wind doesn't get in. Mm -hmm. It is warm and humid to minimize desiccation, right. drying up and uh, dying of the... It's because it is cut off from its mother, it's in the process of dying. Now to slow that down, you need that uh, microclimate. Mm -hmm. And in about 20 to 30 days, it's already sprouting and growing on the rootstock. Wow, that's amazing. Grafting is so incredible, I think, mm -hmm. you know? Yes, it is, yes. Hello. Hi. Oh, the wire's live. Yeah, For elephants, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I've, 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 I learned that the hard way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this is our organic vegetable unit. So wow. basically here we are doing a production of uh, vegetables without uh -huh. using uh, chemicals, without using uh, the commercial fertilizers, the mm -hmm. conventional fertilizers. So it's all organic, like the entire project is. Uh, we are d displaying uh, conservation of water oh, as yeah. you grow. Uh, for, this is specifically for people who can have some water, some little water. There are others without any water. And so we answer the questions for those kind of farmers uh, in the afternoon when we visit our conservation agriculture unit. So the net here serves the purpose of keeping out insects and monkeys mm -hmm. and providing shade to conserve water also. Yeah, the yellow stickers you see also catch insects. Fly paper. Yeah, and basically when you look at it, it tells you when you have pests and which pests you have. So you know that you're doing. We also use our biopesticide that we make ourselves using this chili and other products that we boil and extract. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. George Thumbi wrapping up this edition of Bionic Planet. I'll be filing pieces from here at year-end climate talks in Dubai, thanks to support from Ecosystem Marketplace, my old employer, which has stepped up to cover my travel costs and time. I'll also be dropping more episodes from the Kenya series over the next few months, but interspersed with other stories. If you like what you hear, then be sure to support me at patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash bionicplanet. By the same token, if you're an ethical business looking to reach a global climate-aware audience, you can become a sponsor or advertiser by reaching out to me directly. My address is steve at bionic-planet.com. Finally, if you can't support the show financially, you can still help by giving me an honest five-star review on whichever podcatcher you access me through. That helps because the more stars we get, the more ears we get. And the more ears we get, the more minds we can reach. And we must reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet the climate challenge. We can do it if we all work together. That's all for today. Until next time, I'm Steve Zwick in Dubai. Thanks for listening. <laughs>